It's February 10th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. We'll kick off today's show with a couple of upcoming events. Brad Romine is here to tell us about a workshop on sea level rise, vulnerability, and adaptation. Then Sam Gon joins us to tell us about a nature conservancy talk on water and the watershed. Finally, we will look into the VEX IQ program, which introduces elementary and middle school teams to robotics. We'll hear about the program from the student, teacher, and parent perspective. Of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation. If you or your family has a school robotics story to tell, consider calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. Well, first up, we wanted to welcome Brad Romine from the Coastal Lands, uh, well, I don't know if it's Division, but he's a Coastal Lands Specialist from the Department of Land and Natural Resources, and he's here to tell us about an upcoming workshop on sea level rise. Welcome to the show, Brad. Aloha. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm with the uh, University of Hawaii Sea Grant Program and the Department of Land and Natural Resources. I know. There was a whole slew of uh, uh, associations a, that yeah, you wanted yeah. to it's, point out. It's a long introduction. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, there have been uh, a number of different uh, workshops, seminars, discussions, talks about sea level rise. And, and of course, the uh, question that always comes up is, what can we do about it? Uh, but before we get into the details, what do you want to cover in this uh, workshop that you're holding? Yeah, well, um, this is part of a larger initiative um, by the state of Hawaii um, under the Hawaii Climate Adaptation Initiative Act. This was an act that was passed in 2014 by the state legislature and signed off by the governor, of course. And it's um, the intention of it is to start to prepare Hawaii for climate change and sea level rise in particular and um, it forms an interagency climate adaptation committee mm-hmm. and then also directs the state um, as a first step to start planning for sea level rise and to develop a sea level rise vulnerability and adaptation report. So we're underway with that effort um, through the state and with the uh, partnership with the, the DLNR, the State Office of Planning. We're also partnering with the University of Hawaii School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology as well as Sea Grant, the agency that I work for at University of Hawaii. So... Um, this workshop that we're hosting tomorrow, um, Thursday, is at uh, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and uh, it's a Hawaii Sea Level Rise Vulnerability and Adaptation Workshop, and it's just an opportunity for um, the state and our partners to um, start briefing folks on what we're doing um, for sea level rise planning in Hawaii, and um, we'll have some great uh, introduction from Suzanne Case, our DLNR uh, chairperson uh, Nainoa Thompson from mm-hmm. the uh, Polynesian Voyaging Society is going to give a intro for us and uh, a keynote speech. We have Dr. Chip Fletcher from UH SOEST who's also going to um, give us a nice talk on um, sea level rise, a global and local outlook for that. Um, and then we have some updates on uh, recent Paris Climate Summit and what that means for climate change and sea level rise locally and globally. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, the state's ongoing planning and, and work efforts for the state sea level rise mm-hmm. report. Now, uh, being that it's going to be on campus, I mean, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, student attendees, but uh, this is open to the public. And, and what kind of general audience are you looking for? Yeah, we're hoping for a good cross-section of um, government agencies, private sector, um, university, and, and general public. Um, we really, this is a state process, and 
you know, we're really hoping to get it, everybody involved as much as possible in the mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly sea level rise is of huge concern to many Pacific islands, not just Hawaii. Certainly we have more resources than many to be prepared for the changes that come with it. But I always wonder when you're talking about it, I mean, there are conversations including the new agreement that President Obama helped shepherd on ways to try to mitigate or reduce the amount of sea level rise that we might see as a result of climate change. But when you talk about a policy or preparation what sorts of things would a government do on a policy level or even a practical level rather than ju- other than just saying let's all stock up on sandbags yeah well there's two big slices of the pie there's the the mitigation side which means primarily means we need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we're pumping into the atmosphere um this work the sea level rise report doesn't really cover that there's a lot of great work going on at the state and the, and the federal level and, and and internationally to try to address that but this is more about adaptation um Addressing the fact that we are, even if we make great strides in reducing our greenhouse gas outputs, that we probably are facing serious impacts from sea level rise. We're already facing serious erosion problems and flooding problems in Hawaii on a yearly basis. Something like 70% of our beaches are already eroding. We've lost miles and miles of beach to erosion. And there's all indications that um, even under the the best scenarios for sea level rise, that we're going to see increasing erosion, more severe erosion and flooding. And we need to start to figure out how to adapt to these problems. These are problems we're experiencing now and things we need to plan better for the future with sea level rise. Well, in terms of the attendees, I mean, are you giving them an opportunity to somehow participate in the in the process? I mean, you say that this is a process, but what can they get involved in uh, once they attend this uh, this workshop? Yeah, thanks. Good question. So the first half of this workshop tomorrow is is the this, um, presentations I was discussing. There's a whole afternoon session that is a, a workshop format where mm-hmm. folks will be able to roll up their sleeves and and help us um, discuss uh, what what are the options for adaptation. Um, we'll have the one one exercise I think will be kind of fun where folks will get to kind of role play. You know, they get to step outside their current role. If they're a government administrator or something, they'll get to play a, a real estate agent or a lawyer or something and talk about what their concerns with sea level rise would be from that perspective. And then there's a second half to the workshop where we're hoping folks can craft their message for what, what should the state be doing? What should the local governments be doing to, to deal with climate change and sea level rise? So that'll, we're hoping to get to take that information from that and, and develop that into some portions of the, uh, the sea level rise report. So it's going to produce some deliverables to help uh, advance or fill out this report. Are, are there going to be a series of these events? Uh, yeah, we don't have another one scheduled. Mm-hmm. There are other um, public events that folks can attend. Uh, most importantly, there's the Interagency Climate Adaptation Committee meetings that happen quarterly. I believe the next one is up in, in April or so. Um, uh, I, I should give a pitch to our Hawaii Climate um, Cli- Hawaii Climate Adaptation Portal. That's uh, climateadaptation.hawaii.gov. Folks can go on there and um, find out the latest um, on the state's um, climate sea level rise planning. There's a lot of great background information on climate sea level rise science. And, and I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, what would what would um, people typically expect the state government to get involved in or to actually do? With respect to adaptation, well, that's what we're trying to figure out. First of all, we're, we're with with this sea level rise report. We're looking at the vulnerabilities. What's what's vulnerable, and we're actually doing a very detailed mapping exercise of what along the coast could be vulnerable to erosion and flooding, in particular, with rising sea level rise. And we're working closely with Dr. Fletcher and UH SOS researchers to do that. So that's the first half. What's vulnerable? The second half is after that mapping, we have some. Numbers, values, places, critical infrastructure, 
we'll de- begin to develop recommendations. We're not trying to develop the plan for adapting sea level rise. It's a first step towards that, looking at what's vulnerable and what can we possibly begin to do to address this. And um, this is ultimately supposed to provide a framework for um, the state's climate adaptation plan, which um, the State Office of Planning has been tasked with through this climate adaptation initiative. So and this that is, would probably be where you would look for policy recommendations, maybe about development along the shoreline or perhaps mitigation efforts that are going to be productive versus ones that are less productive um, in terms of trying to preserve uh, shorelines, for example. That's the ultimate goal through the, yeah, the, this planning process, and this report is, is kind of the first step towards that. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, maybe last question is, uh, are there, uh, where does the the general funds come from to actually address this? And obviously, over the years, we haven't really, you know, sort of built any strong plan toward uh, this adaptation. But now, as we do take a more focused look at it, uh, do you see additional funds being required to make some of these projects happen? I hope so. It's it's about raising awareness with our legislators and, and government, and um, I, I think. I, I th- from what I, I see and hear from ongoing legislative session now and, and in the past year or two, there really is a growing awareness of the criticality for Hawaii to begin this planning process. Mm-hmm. We're one of the few coastal states that really does not develop the sea level rise and climate right. adaptation plan, and I, I think folks are becoming aware of that, and we'll see more resources allocated towards that. Oh, very good. So where, when, and uh, how can people find this, uh, this this workshop? Well, th- yeah, the workshop, um, unfortunately, registration is closed. Oh. Uh, there may be a couple spots left if you're really interested in coming. Um, it's at the uh, uh, UH uh, Manoa tomorrow at the Campus, campus Center Ballroom starting at uh, 8 o'clock is check-in. It kicks off at 9 o'clock. Um, if you can't get in, we are recording the event. We'll be filming it. It'll be available on our climateadaptation.hawaii.gov website, and there will be additional meetings, so keep Looking at that website if you're interested, there'll be similar meetings to attend. And keep us posted as well. Happy to do that. Thank you. Well, thanks, Brad, for joining us. And, of course, uh, joining us next is uh, Sam Gunn III. He's the senior (laughs) scientist and cultural advisor from the Nature Conservancy, and he's here to tell us about this webinar on water and the watershed. Welcome to the show, Sam. Oh, it's good to be here again, Bert and Ryan. Well, you know, I I tease you because – when I saw the announcement for the uh, first webinar on Facebook, I thought, wow, this is great. Sam's finally putting it out on, on, uh, you know, to the public and, and maybe potentially recording it. And what took you so long to share your vast knowledge? <laughs> Stop it. Well, um, <laughs> well you know, when you, when you start uh, presenting on the topics that, that I do, and in, in this particular case, it's a focus on Hawaiian cultural perspectives on various aspects of conservation. Mm-hmm. And so the very first one was just an introduction on Hawaiian perspectives, Hawaiian conservation ethic, um, ancient Hawaiian sustainability, and an introduction to that whole broad topic. Um, and and uh, over the years, I've created uh, various perspectives on, in fact, Hawaiian perspectives on climate change, Hawaiian perspectives on the water and watershed, um, hula and the natural world, the mm-hmm. whole symbology of, of, of Hawaii uh, in terms of the natural environment that we're in. And so over the years, those have amassed, and I've, I've presented them to various small audiences here and there, and even like in Europe to, to the, you know, Natural History Museum in Paris and, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Or, or other places like that, the Smithsonian. Um, but those are kind of like limited venues and you don't have a chance to really share more broadly. And so mm-hmm. uh, we, we got the idea, well, why don't we do a WebEx? And it initially it was just so that the rest of our staff, which are across the archipelago, 
So when you give a talk at the, in the basement at our new Wano office, only the folks that can fit in that basement can right, attend. Right. So why not web exit? Why not make it more broadly available? And as soon as it became more broadly available to any of our staff who called in, why not make that number available to anybody who's interested in the topic? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, do you have... Uh envision a, a, a series of these? Obviously, you just mentioned a whole series, so do you, are you looking at every month maybe doing something? I think so. Every month, I mean, we're going to aim for the third Tuesday of every month mm-hmm. uh, to try those different topics. And in fact, the very first time that we did that was an introduction to Hawaiian Perspectives on Conservation. Um, and then it, the, it ended with, okay, and so what else do you want to talk about? And the very the thing that arose the next time is like, what's the Hawaiian view on watershed? So... So that's what we're doing. And so it's kind of partly reactive and partly, um, partly presentations that I've given before that I would like to give, you know, share more broadly. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so, clear you have interests. So what are some of the aspects of the watershed that people are especially interested in? I mean, I'm not sure I would know enough to say that that was an area of focus other than perhaps conflicts over water supply and, and agriculture and things like that. So what are some of the hot, uh, key points that you're going to be covering? Well, when you think about Hawaiian culture and water, Right, water is like the basis for life, and so there are two of the four main gods are devoted to water. Fresh water coming out of the ground is Kane, and water falling out of the sky during the winter is Lono. And so um, you can you can start to build in the whole spiritual and epistemological, that is the whole worldview aspect of of Hawaiian culture and the relationship with water. And if water is coming from the mountain and from the watershed, then what is the, what is the view of that watershed? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. of course, we know that in the lowlands where people were, that was the Waukanaka, the place where people belonged, and in the uplands was the Wawakua, the realm of the gods. And that, that whole relationship between the upland forested watershed and intense sacredness is probably what protected that watershed over the millennia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you know, and and I I really uh, appreciate the perspectives that you're you're sharing. How do you feel that this has perhaps uh, influenced policy or influenced science and influenced our sort of 21st century view of things like water and watershed? Well, I think that well, in policy terms, for example, both the land board and the water commission require a member with some expertise in Hawaiian cultural background in order to add, to offer that framework um, in any decision-making. And that's something that you didn't see 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there's a growing awareness of the general value of Hawaiian knowledge, values, and approaches to everything we do um, on the lands and seas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the best thing for all of us to do is become more cognizant, more aware of that, and more literate, more um, knowledgeable in that realm so that when those decisions are made, people will not be scratching their head and saying, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, yeah, of course, that's consistent with, you know, right, right. with Hawaiian cultural values and knowledge. So you're saying this is something we're seeing more recently. I certainly would agree with that. But can you share any particular examples of current, uh, say, policy or, or, uh, or now established policy that kind of come from that, that realm? Well, I think the original, the original focal point for that was in the planning for the resources of Kaho'olawe. When Kaho'olawe was, was um, conveyed from the Navy to, to the Hawaiian people, um, it was held in trust, actually, for, for the Hawaiian nation should it re-arise. And so it, it's kind of interesting to look at it as both a natural and cultural preserve. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that sense, when you look at the, the cultural resource management side of things and the natural resource management side of things, uh, in, a, in a Western context, those would have been two completely separate documents. 
Mm-hmm. One of them would have been archaeology, and the other one would have been biology and ecology. But in the Hawaiian framework, the living universe is just an import, as important a part to the cultural framework as any, as any human-made uh, elements. And so the integration of those two was one of the first inklings that that Hawaiian cultural perspective offers a different view of how to, how to proceed. Well, you know, I, I really, uh, again, the cultural and natural perspectives as it pertains to Kaho'olawe is a perfect example. As it pertains to Oahu, it's probably a little different story, though I think the freshwater aquifers are a very important resource uh, to Oahu. And how does... How do we proceed to protect those kinds of natural resources, perhaps through cultural perspectives, so that we don't mess up our aquifer? Well, you know, through the luck of history, the the Ahupua'a boundaries that were established in the time of Maili Kukahi, like in the 1400s, are the same boundaries that we use today. The district boundaries between, say, Eva and Kona and the two Ko'olau districts and Waialua and Waianae, have existed for, you know, the last half millennium. Um, and we enjoy the benefit of that wisdom uh, in that the divisions of land tend to run from the tops of the mountains down to the ocean following watersheds. And so if you're thinking about watershed management, mm-hmm. you're thinking also in a traditional framework. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, are there, are there um, say, cautionary examples from what we're experiencing in Honolulu, given our population, um, that you are already looking ahead to with uh, the other islands in our chain and things that they need to be ready for. Well, we all we all have seen um, what happens when you destroy forested watershed. Springs dry up, the rivers are less consistent, um, and and you affect the water supply. Um, you know that we know that when the forests of Kula, for example, were were uh, denuded, you know, in the in the eighteen hundreds, mm-hmm. that things dried up below, and we needed to to tap the windward side of the island of Maui in order to supply water to, to the rest of the island. Um, in fact, in the archaeological framework, when you look at the archaeology of sweet potato production, um, that zone of, 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 um, of archaeological sites is now in a place that is too dry to grow sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. So we know it was much wetter in, the, in just you know, a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that corresponds with the loss of the forest and the loss of the watershed. And so um, knowing those kinds of things, being able to pull in the, car, uh, the cultural framework, what, um, what the oral traditions tell us used to be in a particular place, can be instructive in what we want it to be in the future. Very, very good. So, again, tell us uh, where can people jump in on this webinar if it hasn't already been filled? Well, you know, the thing with our, with our WebEx system is that and it's, it's more a problem with our phone system. It can only take ah. maybe 25 different callers at one time before it's overwhelmed. And so if you want to get in, you better call in at like quarter to 12 on the, on the 16th of February. Um, I'll put the number out on the event that's on Facebook. Okay. Um, just find me, Sam Ohugan. I'm easy to find. I have an entirely public uh, um, timeline and profile. And we'll put it up on our show notes. And I, I'll definitely want to get you back to talk a little bit about Ohia Dieback. That's, oh, a yeah. that's, that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. That's like five different whole no- <laughs> <laughs> topics. Well, thanks, Sam, for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by James uh, Ibanez and and his son, uh, uh, Ethan Ibanez. Of course, they're from Mililani Masters and uh, and Zach Hansel and 
Cameron uh, Shigemoto from the Mililani Middle School. How do robotics programs in middle school compare to their counterparts in high school? What does it take to sustain a robotics movement? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. Our phone lines are open at 941-3689, or if you're on the neighbor islands, call 877-941-3689. And we're live in the studio monitoring Twitter. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin big band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we talk about new ways to think about failure. I failed for the first five or seven years. Now I look back and I say, why did I keep going that long? Because of the shame. I, I didn't want to admit failure. Failing well and failing fast. How failure can be your friend. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday evening at 7, following With Good Reason. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are James and Ethan Ibanez and uh, Zach Hensel and Cameron Shigemoto. And James started the Mililani Masters, a Robotics Club, and Ethan is his sixth-grade son. Zach Hensel, meanwhile, is a STEM teacher at Mililani Middle School, a great school, and a teacher of my son as well. And Cameron Shigemoto is a sixth-grader and part of the Blazers. Go Blazers. Oh, what a coincidence. Nice. Well, what does the VEX IQ program teach you? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> oh, yeah. James, since you're, you know, since you're grabbing that mic, I want to ask you a couple of questions. First off, you're a parent of a son from uh, 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 Middleton Middle, but I think you guys, you actually started, you started a uh, robotics club, which is independent of. The school, and I want to get a little bit of a background on on what was that process. What what got you into, perhaps you know, taking that taking that load. Well, it started a couple of years ago. I approached uh, my kids' elementary school, Milani Ike, with a couple of Vex IQ kits that I got from Art Kimura, mm-hmm. and the intent was me being a part of um, the uh, Hawaii Vex organization in mm-hmm. Hawaii. We're looking for ways to improve or increase the amount of participation for VEX IQ. So approach VEX, uh, Milani uh, EK. Unfortunately, they weren't in a position ready to take on VEX IQ as a new program. And so I asked Art, hey, what do I do with these kits? Can I just start up a team? And he says, yeah. And it's a common thing through across the nation that there are independent robotics teams. So I said, okay, fine. I kept the kits. And uh, next thing you know, I had six, uh, seven kids through the state championship and we qualified for the world's championship uh, last year in our first time out. 
and um, the kids did pretty darn good for their first time out. So that was so last year was the first time you actually got uh, uh, Milani Masters up and running. Yes. Yes. Wow, that's a pretty good first year, I would say. And 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 Ethan, were you in? Were you involved uh, last year as well? Yes, um, I was a fifth grader at the time, so it was good knowing that though there were other people not in the same grade as us, we could still all get together and work for the greater good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, your dad uh, pretty much opened up the house, right, to do the meetups and and yeah. get people to you know build the kits and everything. Yeah, it was, we would use the garage, we would open it up, clear it out, and we would just open up tables and start building and driving. It was, And then we sometimes brought people inside the house to talk, parent mm-hmm. meetings, snacks. Snacks, was, snacks are the snacks good. Are very yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. I have two sons in middle middle school. One of them is in the VEX IQ program. Um, but, of course, I've been trying to get them interested in little bits and programming with Minecraft and programming on iOS. And certainly when you have nerds with kids, you kind of want to pass on that nerd gene. So I have to ask you, you know, how much of this was your own personal interest? I mean, were you interested in robotics independently or did you inherit some of that passion and love from your father? Okay, so I have to admit I'm not kind of that sports person. I'm more of that as you kind of say, nerd. So <laughs> I didn't really do much other things besides going to school, sleeping and eating and stuff like that. So robotics was kind of a gateway for me. So I took it and it happened to be a good experience so I could learn from it. So so Ethan, I mean, did was there was there any amount of uh, uh, nudging on the part of your dad <laughs> that to, to get you out of the bed and say, hey, stop sleeping and work on work on some robotic stuff? Or, or were you naturally drawn to the idea of building a robot? Not at first. I, like, I, I <laughs> usually honest. stay home, eat stuff, or play video games. But I guess you wanted me to do more than that because I have to do more with my life, right? You only live so long. Hey, you're a sixth grader. You know, you better... Get on the ball. (laughs) Get moving. (laughs) Get moving. Well, Zach, I want to get you on, uh, you know, get you kind of sharing a little bit about your uh, uh, school, Middleani Middle. And, of course, uh, after hearing, uh, you know, what uh, James was saying, that did that kind of prompt you to think, wow, you know, Middleani Middle, we got to get our act together and we got to get something going because we can't have parents like James, like, taking all the kids and starting this, (laughs) you know, killer team called Mililani Masters. What is it that Mililani Middle needed to do to actually get the team, you know, get the focus going to uh, start this VEX IQ? Well, I wish I could say it was uh, a competition that, you know, he and I were out to beat each other, but that's that's not the way it works. Um, uh, sadly, I knew nothing about VEX IQ before this year. Never heard of it. Um, I I had tinkered around with the the next level VEX, which is the EDR, um, that's a fully metal robotic. That's more of the high school level one. Uh, so I tinkered with that for a little bit. But uh, uh, James approached the school and he said, hey, uh, again, he's got these two kits. What's he going to do with them? So uh, um, our principal and our vice principal uh, talked to me and they said, are you interested in uh, helping to facilitate a VEX IQ team at our school? And uh, – uh, I don't like to do things halfway. I tend to overdo them and then panic and freak out and <laughs> try and figure out what I'm doing afterwards. So I said, yeah, sure. Let's uh, – we'll do non-competitive. We'll do competitive. Uh, yeah, let's go – we'll go to the competitions. Let's sign it all up. We'll, we'll do 100 percent. Yes. 
Um, about halfway through, I realized that I couldn't do it on my own, so I had to enlist more help. And, and James is that's really the key to this is that uh, James has been there to support Mililani Middle School 100%. So it's not about his team versus my team. It's really – and this goes for the whole Vex IQ program is that it's very much about teamwork. Mm-hmm. It's how are we going to work together? How are, how are the groups going to work together? How are the kids going to work together? How do they work together in their team? How do they work together with other teams? Um, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about this program is it's the alliance of it, the building of that that teamwork. Mm-hmm. Well, Zach, certainly some of the issues would be other programs that need resources and time. Like you said, you wanted to do everything at once, but that was a lot to, to bite off. So um, – how does the Vex IQ program and uh, fit in, or how did you see a lo- uh, maybe complementary elements with some of the other uh, ed tech things and technology things that you were already doing or that was already happening at Milani Middle School? We actually have several uh, different robotics teams uh, at our school. We have uh, First Lego Robotics, which has been doing very well for many years. Um, run by Lynn Yoshioka, who is um, a fabulous teacher. She actually won our Central District Teacher of the Year last year, so that was quite a coup for our school. Um, And we have uh, really pushed this one, I think, just to its infancy. It's now at a stage where it's ready to explode, and our school is going to be huge in this. We're going to have more facilities, more money, more teachers involved, uh, but it's just now it's getting the recognition that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Now, Cameron, uh, I'm curious. You have this first year team starting up. Uh, you have uh, Zach, you know, trying to put the call out. Hey, anybody want to start this robotics team? What was it that got you interested in getting involved with uh, Vex IQ? I actually started the Vex IQ program when I was in elementary school with the Milani Malka team. Um, We actually did well, and we made it to the world championship. And then um, I was so interested in it when we continued to middle school. And then when I found out that they were hosting this program, I wanted to continue in it. Oh, that's great. So how many years were you involved uh, at the, the elementary level? Just in my last year in fifth grade. Oh, and then uh, where were where, where uh, was the world championships? The world championship was in Kentucky. Oh wow, that's great. That's a pretty good experience for a fifth grader. Now you're a sixth grader. Um, uh, what was it that drew you to Vex or robotics in general at, at the in the first place? Um, I was just interested because I heard that I was doing really good in our elementary school, so I went to um, try out, I guess, for the team. And then they showed us a demonstration of what they could do with last year's team and I got really interested because they said that they could like program their robot to do things on their own mm-hmm. without driving it. Mm-hmm. Now were there a lot of students that were interested? I mean what were the sort of the first cohort for uh, this this uh, VEX IQ team? There was a lot of people trying out to get into the elementary team. Hmm. No but what about the for middle school? How many people oh. tried out for middle? Not that much because it was newer mm-hmm. to the middle school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you are obviously a very valuable asset because if you brought all that experience from the fifth grade up to sixth grade, you probably knew a lot of the, the sort of the, the key of the secrets to implement. And, you know, I, I, I want to uh, maybe talk a little bit about 
uh, once you start to kind of like form this team and people show up and people are getting involved, are there ways that that uh, you you as a team sort of decided what people are going to do? Um, on my team, that since I made the Milani Middle School team, I also had team members from the elementary school team with me. Mm-hmm. So we kind of based what we were going to do off of what we were good at. So I was the programmer, so I'm programming, and then um, everyone else would be driving or building. Mm-hmm. Now you said the um, when you made it on the team, what was it that that qualified you for the team? I mean, was it was it uh, Zach deciding? Oh, she's <laughs> got experience. I'm going to have her on our team. And what was the what was the qualifying uh, criteria? That is exactly it. Since I had no experience <laughs> with this, I relied on the students. I said, "You guys did this in your fifth grade year." Guess what? You're on the team again. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. It, they all said, okay, yeah, we'll do it again. So that's exactly how they got on the team. So, Nathan, for the Milani uh, Masters, Ethan. Uh, Ethan, sorry, for the Milani Masters, um, how does that work in the sense that it's not necessarily integrated with a specific school program or with a curriculum, but you will still need to build a team? You'll need to recruit and you need to assign roles. So, how does that work as an independent team? Okay, so the fact that we bring people from all over the island, pretty much, can bring different skill sets. So we have people who are naturally good at, like, building. They like to tinker with things, and they like to be creative and innovative. So that's why we assign some people to building. And other people may be good at programming. They could also be good with design. So there's also the STEM project. Some people like doing research projects. So we just have to kind of find that um, their, like their talent that they have and we can put that to good use. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I, I sort of hinted around this question when I was at the uh, robotic competition. <clears throat> now, people listening will figure that uh, um, Ethan is also going to Milanani Middle, right? So there is probably some uh, thought there that he could potentially have been on the team at Milanani Middle. So at some point in time in your decision making, you had to choose between the Milani Middle Team and the Milani Masters Team. Can you kind of walk us through that uh, that that the decision process? Well, starting off at the Ike level, right? As my dad explained, they didn't really they weren't ready for a team, so that kind of led me to start a bond, like a relationship with our team. So. At the next year, this year, starting the new team with a bunch of new people, I didn't really want to leave that just yet. I might think about switching when they start a VRC team because not only cost, but I just want to experience it mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. So you actually decided to stay with Milani Masters for the greater, the greater good. Right, that's good. <laughs> well, yeah. James, now when you're when you're talking about an independent team, um, in a way you're trying to encourage students to participate in something, but but thinking as a, a harried parent, parent, I'd be like, well, but that's not even associated with the school. Where's the school credit? You know, how does that help in classes and stuff? Um, what? Uh, how how are you able to build or would you sustain an independent team um, uh, outside of a school in that way? Parents. Parents were instrumental in providing the foundation support for the for, uh, for the independent team, and um, because the costs we have we have to like with similar athletics outside the schools we have to charge uh, 
a entry fee or registration fee joining fee to help cover those costs. And in addition to that, I've been applying for grants and partnership with the uh, U.S. Navy mm-hmm. uh, through my uh, through my employment because I work at the Naval Shipyard. That allowed us to bring in the material aspects, the kits into mm-hmm. the uh, into the into the program. And after that, it's of course the parents bringing the kids over to the house, and um, and and even participating, even providing like snacks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, and of course, outside of that, as we prepare for worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. Fundraising. We have mm-hmm. to also look at how we do fundraising. So that's the money aspect. But as far as the program itself, the um, the organizers of the competition, the uh, Robotics Education and Competition Foundation, actually created a curriculum, a twelve unit lesson plan that incorporates every aspect of of uh, science, technology, engineering, and math (STEM), and provides this lesson plan that a teacher can take and implement in their class. So I took advantage of that, and actually ended up starting teaching the kids. Hmm. about robotics and if I had I known that last year that would have made it a lot simpler for <laughs> for me uh, to bring the kids up to speed in robotics and I would imagine there's a lot of homeschool students I know some homeschooling parents in Milani that, that this is probably a good path for them as well again because the curriculum is provided for them oh absolutely and, and in fact um, there is at least three two or three homeschool teams that I'm aware of in, in Hawaii that's been participating in VEX Robotics VEX IQ and in in the upper-level VRC. Well, you know, there was uh, uh, one team that I had my eye on. Uh, we had actually interviewed them, and they really were quite uh, impressive. It was, uh, I think, the uh, the um, the boy was a, s- a seventh grader, and the, the, his sister was a second grader. Yes. And uh, this team just performed really, really well. Homeschool Robotics. Yeah, HS59. HS Robotics, yeah. And they, 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 uh, we've actually developed a, a friendship and a, and, um, and a relationship with, the, with that team. And it was pretty exciting where you think you talk about some of the, the qualifiers that we had and, in fact, some of the, uh, the sudden death matches that we had and where we were able to maximize our scoring ability. As, as Zach was pointing out, it's a team alliance approach to um, working together and, and scoring the best that the two teams can. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, Homeschool Robotics, uh, they've just been just a wonderful um, alliance and competition. But also um, the, uh, the teacher, the mom, Chanel, has been really um, open and sharing information as well. Uh, every opportunity, she would just even offer information that I wasn't even aware of, and and it actually helped out our team as well. So mm-hmm. we love these opportunities to be able to talk to these other schools and develop these friendships and share information across the board. Yeah, so Zach, I mean, I like that element, the alliance element, because you can have a private school and a public school. You can have a home school and a public school. I mean, they need to work together, and those are interactions that they, they probably wouldn't be able to, to have in, in any other environment. Uh, absolutely, and and we too look forward to seeing all those teams there. It is like coming back to old friends and, you know, uh, because it is friendly competition and not so competitive, there's really no angst about it. It's just coming back, seeing high, learning from each other, building, developing, engineering. So Cameron, you you talked about, you know, coming in and, and bringing and really kind of helping Zach to get things going. Um, but as you build a team and and, and, uh, and and Ethan mentioned having different talents and interests, what was your particular expertise or your 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 uh, best offering for your team? I think my best offering to the team besides experience was that I could program the robot Um it was also, um, yeah, I was a programmer because no, I don't think anybody else was able to program because they didn't have the knowledge and how to. So Was that something that you picked up just from the year before or were you already a 
coder before that? I just picked it up the year before. Oh, impressive. That's great. That's great. You know, I want to hear a little bit about the uh, um, the actual competition because I'm always amazed at uh, what takes place in the ring itself. But we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with James and Ethan Ibanez and Zach Hensel and Cameron Shigamoto about Vex IQ. And how do you sustain a program like this, whether in or outside of a school? And, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm John J. Prendergast, author of In Touch. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to tune in to the inner guidance of your body and trust yourself. Sunday morning at 11. Violinist Dwayne Padilla and guitarist Ian O'Sullivan both received classical music training at Yale University. On February 13th, they performed together as the Eli Duo in HPR's Atherton Studio. They'll be showing off their classical chops as well as their affinity for the avant-garde. Reservations at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to James and Ethan Ibanez and Zach Hensel and Cameron Shigemoto about launching a STEM career from Vex Robotics. And, of course, uh, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, there were a lot of neighbor island uh, teams that uh, were participating in this uh, Vex IQ. And, of course, right before the break, I wanted to, you know what I wanted to explore a little bit was – I had gone to the VEX championship competition in Pearl City, Pearl City High, uh, back in, I think it was like December or something. And that was the high school teams. And the, the high school teams, it was like, uh, you know, the, the, these, you know, pretty hefty uh, robots. They had to shoot balls into um, like a, a, a net. <clears throat> and, and when I went to the VEX IQ, I saw a, a very similar kind of setup. They had to shoot balls into a... Uh, a container, uh, but maybe um, Cameron, can, can you explain like when the bell rings? What is it that the two teams have to do uh, in order to get score? Get a score. So for each driving match, you have one minute to accomplish your task. Um, so the goal is to try to get as much balls as you can into either the scoring zone, which is the side. Uh, other side of the gate mm-hmm, with the goal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and get balls into the goal. Each ball into the goal is worth three points and in the scoring zone is one. Um, at the 35-second mark, another uh, timer will ring and that's a t- to sig- signal that you should start switching the controller mm-hmm. because you have two drivers mm-hmm. and then you have to switch by 27, 25 seconds. Now, what's interesting in what you just said is that the um, the balls that go into the container, it contributes to a team score, not an individual score, right? So what was really different for me was that 
when I was watching the VEX competition, it was more about individual team scores as opposed to, well, actually, I take that back. There were like four teams, and there were an alliance and another alliance, whereas you folks were two together, maybe basically forming an alliance, right? And then trying to achieve as high a score as possible. So I want to ask you, when you don't know who your team your team alliance is going to be, right? So nobody really knows, like, are you going to be teamed up with, you know, let's say, uh, HS uh, Robotics or you know, somebody from Sacred Hearts? So you don't know. What is it that you go through as a, a you know, let's say, Milani Middle, uh, and you know now your team is, uh, you know, let's say, Sacred Hearts? What do you do once you know? Um, we actually get a schedule of who we're going to be driving with, mm-hmm. and it has the list of teams and what time our matches are going to be. And so we have the opportunity to um, practice driving with the team so we can work out a, um, how, a strategy mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what will be the most efficient for us to get a good amount of points. And then when you, when you talk about strategy, do you look at the different, let's say, um, qualities of the robots? Like what can one perform better than the other? Um, yeah, one quality that our, our team really looks for is how many you can get in the goal and whether or not you can get up the ramp because going up the ramp also gets you points. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, Ethan, for for the competition, uh, I know at least at the, the high school level it was interesting because it was about you know shooting balls into a goal, but there were different ways of accomplishing that. Some were using sort of slingshots. Some were using uh, spinning wheels that shot them out like a, like a tennis ball launcher. They had different approaches. Um, was there a unified kind of understood strategy that everybody was using to make these goals? Or did you see what were some of the different approaches that you saw people use and what was yours to get goals? Well, some people at first they didn't come into competitions, they just watched other teams come up with their designs. So some people had dumpers. They picked the balls and they stretched over the barrier and dumped balls into the goals. Other Others had flywheels, right? Two wheels that spin balls, spin at high speeds and f- um, fling balls into the goal. So we we saw we saw that we saw those designs, and we didn't really want to copy them. Not saying that we would, but we wanted to come up with our own unique approach. So we came up with compression launcher, which not a, no other team really did. So pretty much it squeezes balls and then it sh- um, clamps them clamps on them and it shoots them out so yeah and that's what we stuck for for a while until we've noticed some problems and we came up with a kind of a catapult design so it kicks balls pretty much now when you start to evaluate you know the uh, performance of your uh, whether it's a catapult or or you're you know you're uh, sort of launching these balls i noticed that there were a couple of them well the the one that scoops the balls right i mean they go out and they scoop the balls and it's more like how many balls can they actually con- hold in that scooper and then they dump it into the container so that's like maximizing that that effort right and then some of the ones that were actually uh, shooting balls i saw one that was like shooting three balls at a time and I mean, it was like a pretty you know a pretty accurate and massive amount of balls that they could get in so when you start to decide what is it that you know where's the engineering sort of crossover point for in terms of design and and maximizing the amount of balls you can get in you know you, you can you can go with one ball sh- you know shot at a time you can go to three balls shot at a time or you can go with the whole scooper and <laughs> dump it in where do you find where did you find that sort of crossover 
So if you wanted to go with a mass, like a dump, you would have to find a way. You would have to s- sacrifice something. There's always a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. have everything mm-hmm. at once. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we mainly look at as a sacrifice for our design is weight. Because though there are uh, dimensions, right, 13 by 20 by 15, there's no weight limitation. So they'll let us quote on forever as long as we can fit inside that box. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about it. Where are we going to stop ourselves? And, right, because if you're too heavy, you're too slow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you want to go with something that can score well but doesn't, like, is not it's a giant block mm-hmm. just rolling around the field. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Zach, I know you got something to say, so. Uh, yeah, uh, speed is important, um, but I was just going to touch on the different types of robots and how yeah, exciting yeah. that is for the kids. Um, I know that uh, uh, I took a team, a third team for Mililani this year to our state championships. Um, they had only been practicing for about two weeks before the state championships, so that was it was exciting for them to see all the robots because they hadn't ever been to a competition before. This was only their second competition, and all of them, they just got there, they dropped their stuff off, and then they just walked around, and they just checked everything out, and they looked at all the different robots. They looked at all the different designs, and you know, they'd come back, and they'd be like, oh, check out that one. It's got tank treads. Oh, that one's going to dump everything. And it was um, that's really one of the coolest things about all this engineering is you get to see – how everything progresses and and the robots do progress mm-hmm. many of them mm-hmm. come to each competition with a brand new robot mm-hmm. now uh, Cameron uh, there I, I, I'm always excited by certainly the build aspects and building robots and different tools and levers and compression launchers uh, but w- can you explain to me as the programmer I mean what what element of that is in the robots operation is there an autonomous period or I mean what what is the, what does the programmer do Yes, there is an autonomous period. It's part of the skills um, competition side. So it's when it's only your robot driving and or getting programmed to do something and trying to get as much points as possible. Our team uses Robot C to program our robot, and I based off programming strategy based on how we drive our robot. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Cameron, um, you know we've been talking about. Shooting balls into a uh, you know a container, but there was another aspect of the uh, you know sort of the ring that I want you to talk a little bit about, which is the ramp, and that was a whole another design uh, requirement. Tell us about the ramp. Uh, the ramp has the sixteen balls on it, mm-hmm. and every ball you knock out of its little socket, I guess, is worth a point. And what, what every well the first robot parts on the ramp is ten points, and the second one would be 15 points um, if you're an alliance. Now, the interesting thing about the ramp is that there's also points that you can get if you end your robot by going up the ramp and actually being parked on the ramp. Yeah, that's how you can get the 10 and 15 points. So that's what a lot of teams look for when they're getting alliance. And another, you know, sort of an interesting design was that uh, there were some designs that actually <coughs> made it quite... Um, they were quite specific about where the intake on the robot was so that as it went up the ramp, the balls, instead of being pushed off, actually went into the, into the robot. Yeah, I, that was part of Milani Master's design, and I think it was very ethical because it was another way to get more balls into the scoring area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good. So, so is that something that, how many, how many teams does the Milani Master's have? 
So our first year, we only held one. And our second year, we started off with so the first two teams. We made two middle school teams and one um, elementary. So we had one elementary team had nine people, seven people. So, and then our first middle school team had five. That's the team I'm on. And the second middle school team had four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and we looked at the elementary team. That's too many people. So we cut in half. We made another team. So now one team has three people and one, the other team has four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about how you ended up designing it in such a way that you could actually intake balls as you went up that ramp? So we started off with our first design. We just decided to do a simple collector, but we've noticed problems because that's your job as engineer, right? You come up with a design, you prototype it, you build it, you do the task, and you look at it and you reflect what was the good things or the bad things. How Mm -hmm. can I improve on this? So we noticed that it was going too slow. We needed to speed up or run out of time. So we decided to go two at a time. Not many teams do this, right? The only other teams that we know can collect more than one at a time are those scooping and dumping teams or teams that just do, do mass collections. So that was one thing that's unique, unique to us. And the way balls are positioned on the field, we designed a robot so they the collectors go, go right are in line with the ball so we can just ram them and we would collect mm. them so and we thought about the ramp that's 16 balls just waiting to be scored mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. try to take advantage of that that's great well James I, I like the idea of all these prototypes and building but certainly when you're an independent team and you said you used your garage as the workshop does that mean many late nights of balls hitting walls and mm-hmm. rolling out of the garage and into the street I mean what is that like so that was a, that was our first year we did it in a garage and this the second year I convinced my wife to Bring the team inside of the house. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but doesn't that mean that you're going to knock over vases and things? Well, well, fortunately for me, I had this other room that I turned into a robot it's, room. It's, it's, yeah, it was called my flex room, and I turned it into my ro- ro- robotics training room. And we would literally at one point cram all sixteen kids into the wow. uh, into the room, training and and driving robots and shooting balls. So <clears throat> that's basically um, how we actually would run a, uh, our our regular practice meetings. So front of the house would be used for building robots and teaching them about robotics, STEM. And then we moved into the practice room where they can actually, like Ethan was talking about, testing the designs that they, that they prototype. So James, I mean, you know, this is a lot of time uh, and resource and energy on your part to really nurture this, this uh, robotics team. Uh, I, you know, I, I of course, I, I um, look at the teachers and see how they put in all the time, you know, during the day and then continue to do that for the robotics teams after, uh, after school. But what, what is it that motivates you to, you know, want to be so passionate about supporting this team? So we look at it as <clears throat> opportunities. Uh, one, uh, being a part of the Hawaii VEX organization, we look for opportunities to improve exposure to VEX IQ or robotics in general. And I really think that strongly that this program really offers a lot to the uh, to a child in terms of learning practical things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they can actually apply later on when they, when they uh, eventually graduate and become workers. Mm-hmm. And Zach, for you, I mean, um, and I'm certainly glad that you're you're uh, teaching the, the students at Milani Middle, where my two of my kids are now. Thank you. Uh, you spoke about the excitement mm-hmm. of watching these kids discovering new ways to approach mm-hmm. things. As a teacher, uh, what is it that motivates you to advance this program and see it grow? Well, I want to um, 
because I teach public school, I'm dealing with everybody from every walk of life, from no matter where they come from, every socioeconomic status, um, every race, every gender. So um, for me, this is really about giving equal opportunity to people who who have not been exposed to that. Uh, Ethan has been lucky to have a wonderful engineer father who's really been able to mentor him in the, the field of robotics. But there's a lot of people out there who don't have that. Myself, I, my father was a writer, and here I am teaching science and technology and, and doing robotics and, and you know, getting to, to give that access to people who don't have a family for this. It, it, that's really where I'm at, and that's really why I keep – pushing this and working the late nights because it mm-hmm. is fun. Well, we're almost out of time, but of course, the question we like to ask when we have young students here, uh, Cameron, you first, um, you have some more time before getting out of school and thinking about a career, but have you already started to imagine what that future might be like for you? Um. Yeah, I've been really interested in, well, I was not always interested in robotics, but now I've started to really get interested in it and being some kind of engineer is really something I'm looking forward to. That's yeah. great. Very cool. Ethan? Yeah, like I said before, I'm not that kind of athletic person, so I think robotics is the nerd athletics. So I'm thinking <laughs> about maybe continuing that, maybe doing the higher levels and maybe continuing as an engineer because my, my father is a mechanical engineer and my mo- mother is a civil engineer. Oh, all in a family. Yeah. Great. So, James, the, if someone wanted to see how your team is going, I, I understand you have a Instagram account? Yes. Uh, I'm one of those social inept folks, but <laughs> I finally broke through. I set up a uh, Instagram account. It's uh, CSE underscore robotics. Uh, and uh, Yeah, maybe uh, send that to me later. I'll put it up on our show notes. Oh, yeah. oh definitely. And then, uh, if somebody wants to find more about uh, Vex IQ. Uh, we don't have any social media in ours, but uh, the Mililani Middle School program has a has a great homepage website that you can find access to all the the Mililani Middle School programs that we offer after school. Um, but I'd also like to just real quick plug in our uh, parent teacher organization. It is uh, without them, this program would not be as well funded as it is. And so, thank you to all the community of Mililani for helping to support this after school. Oh, very program. good, very absolutely. Good. We'll link to that at bitemarkscafe.org as well. Well, Jay's, uh, James uh, Ibanez and his sixth grader and his sixth grade son Ethan Ibanez are part of the uh, Mililani Masters, and of course Zach Hensel and. And uh, Cameron Shigamoto, sixth grader over at Mililani Middle School, we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was an honor. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll explore the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument with Okeanos. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovic. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Hippo Campus and a song called South. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.